Namaste, everyone. Welcome to Dharma Talk. This is Shiv Baba. I am your host. So last week, we talked a whole lot about non-duality, which is the concept that everything is made of the same fundamental essence, uh, whether it's me or the deity I'm worshiping or my cat. Um, and this is a really important concept, not just in most Hinduism, but also in several kinds of uh, Buddhism. Uh, this is a fundamental assumption of Tantra, but we'll talk more about that in a little while. So I wanted to start off this time with a bit of a, of a background on the term Hinduism. And because what we're talking about, I think to most Western ears would fall into the category of Hinduism and also Tibetan Buddhism, but focused on Hinduism. Um, so where does the term come to come from? Well, from my understanding is that it's it's a it's a description by foreigners, uh, and it kind of lumped a huge number of spiritual traditions, and I think you could ac accurately say a huge number of of religions that were being practiced on the Indian subcontinent, all into the group of Hinduism. Uh, and then, of course, during the struggle for independence, uh, the construct Hinduism w was useful in uh, unifying the country just uh, in the struggle for independence. So I think the most correct term for what we're talking about is in the general sense, Tantra, and where we get specific uh, in the sense of the Sanatana uh, Dharma, the universal religion. Um, I was meditating on this a little bit this morning, the concept of a universal religion and what that means. And so I did a little bit of going back to, to primal sources, primary sources, and studying. Um, and some thought that our dharma was once known in, in, in prior epics uh, to all of humanity, and that it was retained better in some cultures than in others, which is interesting because, I mean, empirically, we do observe um, when we look at uh, anthropological, comparative anthropological studies of religion, that there are common strains uh, in a great many world religions. Um, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that a little bit later in the show. Um, but I mean, you can't take a cultural anthropology course and, and come out of it not thinking, wow, uh, religion across time and across culture has certain core elements uh, the semantics used to describe them are very different, but the constructs are there in different forms. Um, th there's an interesting parallel with uh, between what we'll conveniently call Hinduism and Western European pantheism. Um, there have been least two books that I can think of offhand that <clears throat> describe that, that uh, look at the similarities between Shiva and Dionysus, for example. That's attracted 
uh, a fair amount of scholarly writing. Um, and I was thinking also, you know, when you think about the, the commonalities of the world religions, uh, think how many religions offer light in some form as, as a ritual. Uh, Roman Catholics, uh, Greek Orthodox, uh, Jewish services involve candles, uh, Buddhist and Buddhists usually use uh, ghee lamps, as, as do Hindus, ghee lamps. Uh, incense is, is kind of a, a common theme. So you wonder, what's the source of these universal archetypes? Well, we can't make any conclusions scientifically, but we're not constrained by science right now. We're, we're in a, a slightly different domain. And maybe we can think of these, these commonalities that we see in all of these world religions as evidence of universal archetypes. And the archetypes are manifested in, in very different forms, but they're, they're still archetypes. Um, there's a, a Jung Center in the city I live in. So uh, I, I visited it several times and I studied Jung. Uh, and when you start talking about, you know, primal archetypes or universal archetypes, in the West, Jung is going to have to be addressed in the, in the discussion. But I, I think the important thing to remember here is I, I don't think Jung was particularly uh, I don't think he embraced metaphysics as, as a part of his reality intrinsically. I think he he used metaphysical um, archetypes of, of, to describe commonalities in, in human thinking. But I don't think I don't think I I don't think there's any evidence of Jung saying, hey, you know, our psyche is tying into a a universal consciousness, and that's what's causing these archetypes to be the same. Um, so here we are, uh, we're seekers, we're looking for contact with uh, the absolute. We believe it can change our lives. Um, what, what, how do we go about this? What's the established? We don't want to reinvent the wheel. Have have others in the past been successful in doing what I'm trying to do? And if so, what did they do? I, I want to share in their success. Um, and according to the tradition that I received, there are different ages of, of humanity. Uh, the first age is characterized by uh, no alienation between humanity and, and the, the deities. Uh, wisdom, innocence, it was a good time. And this was the time of, of the, the, the Vedas. Very old Sanskrit documents that very, that describe in great detail the, the rituals of, of some cultures in ancient India a very long time ago. Um, and they're very interesting to read. There, um, there are a lot of hymns, and then there are later on in, in after the Rig Veda, there are specific rituals, and they're fascinating to read about. 
uh, and yet in my daily practice, what I do is kind of similar to that, but in the tradition I received, it is said that we're in the Kali Yuga, which is the last age of a very long-term cycle. And that doesn't mean that we think the world is going to end uh, soon or anything. It just means, you know, we're kind of in the, the last quarter of the grand cycle and things are different now because the Dharma is not as widely available as it used to be. Um, mankind isn't as innocent as it used to be. It's a difficult age. It's an age that's characterized uh, in large part by a lot of conflict and disharmony and disunion. Um, so the path to the absolute under these circumstances, uh, you would it's understandable that it would be different than in the Vedic time. In our time, we have the tantras. Um, and I guess you could describe the tantras as uh, uh, battle-hardened, uh, uh, distilled essence of Vedic practices. There are still some physical offerings, but it's not it's not making an offering to a deity uh, for the, really the benefit of the deity. It's offering a gift of love to a deity. Uh, and, and you're going to be the primary beneficiary. Um, and we'll talk about, about puja in just a moment. Um, but here in the, in the Kali Yuga, in our age, tantric practice is streamlined and it's portable and it can be practiced by a monastic or by a householder, even a busy householder. Um, so it's very appropriate for our age. And we'll talk about the tantras, the, both in the sense of the word that uh, the scriptural lineage, uh, a tr scriptural tradition, and uh, the the practical tradition, like the, what what have tantrics done over time, and and uh, how many different kinds of tantric groups were they, and what were their emphasis, and we'll we'll cover that in future shows. Um, so again, we'll use the term Hinduism for convenience because we're we're in the West right now. Uh, Hinduism is very interesting because there is no central organization. Um, the, you know, modern religion is, is kind of characterized by, uh, there are different Christian organizations and, and they have their own systems of authority. Uh, there are different uh, Islamic organizations and, and they have different systems of authority and slightly different beliefs, uh, different varieties of, of uh, Buddhists. But uh, Hinduism doesn't have any equivalent. It doesn't have a Dalai Lama or a governing council or um, the equivalent of a, a pope or an archbishop. It's highly decentralized. And when you first study it, you think, oh my gosh, you know, because if, if you have a Western mind like mine, you think, oh my gosh, how do they ever like keep going in the same direction without some sort of a guiding authority? Well, they do. Uh, 
and it's you know these beliefs and these practices and these societies that that are centered around are remarkably stable over time uh it it looks like a recipe for chaos there's there's no dalai lama to say oh hey you guys you know i think you're getting off track um which is i mean it certainly makes it makes things easier i guess but hinduism does not have that and it it never has had that. Um, I mean, to start with, it, the sources of it are a lot of different religions and a lot of traditions within those religions, and now they're kind of they're merged together in the Kali Yuga under this modern umbrella. Um, but they're really diverse. They're, there's a, a lot of diversity in these uh, religions that came together to kind of become modern Hinduism. Um, but there's no centralized dogma. There's no central creed. There are certain texts that, uh, you know, certain groups emphasize over others, uh, but there's no, there's no central dogma. So this is, it's an interesting quote, religion, right? Because it's a collection of religions and with just incredible diversity. Diversity, uh, we'll go over that uh, when we talk about the yogas. Um, also, uh, peoples and practices that we think of as Hindu in the West, uh, they span all the way from fully dualistic to completely non-dualistic. And by fully dualistic, I mean, um, there's a belief that there's a difference between God and, and humanity or the gods and humanity. Um, and that specific deities exist unto themselves, uh, as, as we all do. Um, and the deities are appeased by, well, you know, the same kind of devotions that, that, that non-dual tantrics offer. Um, but it's a different set of underlying assumptions. And then you go all the way over to fully non-dual and you say, well, all that exists is well. All that exists is the supreme Atma, the supreme self from which all arises. Uh, and so it, the supreme, the supreme self manifests itself differently to different cultures in ways that they can best understand. And by extension, uh, the, the, the Atman, the, I mean, the Paramatman, the, the supreme self, manifest to each individual in a way that they can best understand. Um, so that has some really interesting implications. I, my tradition is, is much more into the non-dual side, but there, there are dualistic traditions that survive to this day um, and would probably be described as Hindu by, by Westerners. Um, so there are a lot of there are commonalities among the different traditions that are grouped together as, as Hindu, but different groups have different emphasis on on the types of yoga that they emphasize. Um, so for convenience, this is an academic rule this, but for our purposes here, let's think of four yogas. Yoga means union, so these are four paths to union. There's the path of knowledge and consciousness focusing. Um, 
which is learning how to, you know, ma manipulate Kundalini and energy within yourself, uh, to use breathing exercises to focus consciousness directly on the Brahman as the Brahman is manifesting in the world before you. Uh, I guess we could say it's probably the most in, most uh, inherently intellectual of the yogas. It has it has a lot of similarities with Zen Buddhism, though. Um, and interestingly enough, the path of knowledge and consciousness doesn't necessarily always in, involve interaction with deities. Although there there are many practitioners of that path that are. Uh, you know, deeply, deeply attached to, to Shiva or to Vishnu or, uh, and so the, the knowledge of union of, of Atman, the, the, the self, the Jiva, the, the individual being, um, and Brahman, which is the capital S self, the, the, the supreme self from all else, from which all else arises. That's the kind of knowledge that you're seeking on that path of knowledge. Um, and it can come from books and it can also come from direct experience in meditation. So it's very interesting area. It's not my area of focus, um, but it's, it's fascinating. Then there's karma yoga. And I think we all uh, somewhat unwittingly practice this. It's the yoga of action or behavior, um, more specifically social action, selfless acts that benefit others. Uh, altruism, philanthropy, uh, and, and you know this isn't just uh, you know the homeless person on the street. It includes them, but it also includes the people that you live with, the people in your ashram, the people in your family, the people at work. Uh, how can I sweeten my karma by serving those around me? Um, and, and and or if you're a, have a a more theistic more theistic emphasis how can how can i serve shiva or or vishnu or kali by serving this person that's in front of me uh, so i guess you could say if you're if your focus is karma yoga uh you see your whole work day as a puja and you're offering it to your deity and you want the offering to be as perfect as possible. And when you're around your friends and family, you're not there to see what you can get out of it. You're, you're there to see what you can add. So uh, that's karma yoga. If you show up and you're there for, you're there to sweeten the experience and benefit of others and to benefit others. That's karma yoga. Um, and then <clears throat> there's Hatha Yoga, which this isn't academically rigorous, but it's the yoga of the body. Um, in my personal experience, it, it involves a submission of the, the small S self, the Atman, to the big S self, the, 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 the uh, supreme Atman, by holding postures. I'm going to hold this posture as perfectly as I can as an act of submission and love to this deity. 
uh, certainly doesn't have to have a theistic focus. But with me, everything somehow ends up having a theistic. Everything comes back to Shiva in my private practice. But that doesn't mean that it always has to be that way. Um, and in Hatha Yoga, this is, this is what's taught in your local yoga studio in your neighborhood. The underlying assumption is that you're, you're able to manipulate uh, and control primal energies by using hand and body in, uh, positions and focusing your consciousness in a certain way. Um, and then there's bhakti yoga. That's, that's where I live. That's the yoga of devotion. Um, and in, it can take different forms. Uh, in, the, in my lineage, um, it involved the worship of five deities, kind of a cyclical fa fashion. I've adapted the practice in my own life over time to focus almost entirely on Shiva and worship the other deities as a part of, of every, every Shiva puja. But because I've come to see that you don't ever outgrow having a guru. You start off with the human guru. <clears throat> um, and you learn every single thing you can from your guru's experience. And you find ways to have your own experiences uh, using the knowledge that your guru imparted to you. So your, your guru's job is to empower you. It's not to, it's not to convince you to buy into their experience. It's to give you the tools so that you can have your own experience. And that's that's that is a radical departure from from anything I'm aware of in, in Western monasticism. It's it's a in my opinion it's it's beautiful, and it and it certainly works over thousands of years. Um, and you learn to love your guru, and you learn one of your first experiences in seeing the supreme self, the 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 supreme divinity in all beings is to be able to see the supreme divinity in the face of your Google. Um, and it starts there. And then you get, you develop a relationship with, with a deity and you begin to understand, to perceive the, the supreme divinity through your Ishta Devata, your, your precious, personal deity with whom you've built a relationship. Um, so that brings us <clears throat> to deities, <clears throat> which we haven't covered yet at all. And they're probably the most visible aspect of Hinduism or Tibetan Buddhism because of the iconography. We're all familiar with, even in the West, we're, we're familiar with the iconography. Um, so what is a what what are these 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 beings that we're calling deities? Um, well, all all being if you're if you're coming from a non-dual perspective as I do, all beings are manifestations of divine consciousness that start off in a state of absolute ignorance of their own nature, and incarnation after incarnation, 
slowly lose, they slowly shed a self-created cloak of ignorance and assumptions and begin to understand their true nature. Some of the tantric practices are said to, to speed that process along. And I think that has been my experience. Um, things do happen faster with tantra. Um, I mean, if all beings are manifestations of divine consciousness, who is Shiva? And who's Krishna? Who's Hanuman? Um, in, in every grand cosmic cycle, the Brahman or, or the the ultimate, the supreme self manifests in certain specific limited forms for the purpose of communicating with uh, humanity. Uh, and these are the major deities that we're all familiar with, like Shiva, Brahma, Vishnu, Krishna, Hanuman, Durga Ma, Kali. Uh, and in the in the iconography, the, the the statues and the pictures. A lot of time they sh a lot of times they show them in battle, or they show them uh, kind of in a royal pose on a on a lotus throne. Um, and they are they are cosmic rulers, but more importantly to us is that they have a strong desire to help those who are on the journey home to moksha, to union with the absolute. Um, the deities have very distinct personalities. They're, they have likes and dislikes. Uh, the various scriptures delineate those. Well, when we, when we have whole shows on each deity, we'll go into some of the likes and dislikes because they're, they're fun to study and um, they make you feel closer to your deity when you know more about them. Um, why are they human-like? Well, because the they are the, the Paramatman reaching out to humanity in a way humanity can understand. The chief goal, Shiva's chief goal in my life is to help me learn to improve my own karma. He's the ultimate guru, and that lesson never stops until moksha. So always, every 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 day, Shiva has something, maybe small, maybe large, but it's something that he teaches me. Um, I'm always going to be a student uh, until, until moksha. Um, but, you know, while we're on the topic of moksha, <clears throat> I should mention, my guru said that he wasn't necessarily in any hurry to get anywhere. He said, I'm very happy where I'm at, doing what I'm doing. I'm in a good place, doing good things with good people for a good reason. I don't need to escape. I don't, I don't need to be liberated from anything in, in the sense of, of my, uh, you know, content, my life context. Eventually, it will time, be time to go to union. And that will be wonderful. But right now, that doesn't mean right this minute, I can't enjoy uh, divine union and, and sharing methods for reaching divine union with those who are, who are coming after me. I'm very happy. So when you think about moksha or liberation, 
Don't think of it as escaping from a prison because things can get pretty nice right here pretty quickly um, to where you don't, you don't really want to, you, you might want to stick around and, and perform uh, divine acts. You might want to, you know, just, just because it's, it's, it's pleasing to do it. So we're not always talking about escaping from <clears throat> a, a purgatory or hell or something. We're just saying, ultimately, everybody goes and rejoins the whole. But you can have a, a lot of very, very fulfilling, probably whole incarnations while we're here. Um, and again, and this probably bears emphasis. I don't know how to relate to the infinite. Like, I can't, I don't know how to have a conversation with the infinite. It's so other than me, even though I'm one with Brahman. My current ignorance prevents me from directly interacting uh, with, with the Brahman on, on a direct level. So I interact with Brahman through Shiva. Other people have different deities, but I think most agree it's the Brahman limiting itself to a particular form that jivas, that individual beings can feel comfortable having a conversation with, can have a comfortable having a relationship with. Um, there are also deities that we only know as classes. In other words, it's a lot of individual kind of minor deities that we know uh, as a class, like the Rudras. And we'll deal with those in a future so show, too. They're very interesting to study. Um, lastly, on, on the deities, there are at least hundreds of thousands of very powerful beings who have shed ignorance of their true nature and purified karma by purifying austerities uh, that most of us don't know anything about. We know from the source documents that they're there, for, for like in the Vedas, but we, we usually don't know a whole lot about them. Uh, in, an interesting footnote here is that in, for a long time, the word devas was used to describe any being that had become powerful by practicing purifying austerities. Um, and later on, we, well, particularly in Western interpretations of, of the text, we, we talk about the deities, the, the devas, and the asuras, which is the good guys and the bad guys, respectively. Um, but as a class, what they have in common is that they became very powerful because when you realize what your true nature is, that it's unlimited, um, very, th very amazing things can happen. Most of us don't do the kind of purifying austerities that these beings have done. I guess you probably work up to that over a period of lifetimes. Um, and I'm, I'm not able to fly just yet, so I'm not, I'm not there yet. But the, that's what. The, so the the, no, the notion of divinity <clears throat> in Hinduism. It, 
is a very broad man, very broad meaning. There are a lot of different manifestations of our divinity. So, um, in many, but not all of 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 the the Hindu group of religions, you have three main deities: Brahma, who's married to Sarasvati. Vishnu, who's married to Lakshmi, uh, Shiva, who's married to Parvati. Um, and so Brahma is thought of as, as the, the creator. He's uh, my favorite translator to English, of, of Sanskrit to English, says that Brahma is the consciousness of creation and Sarasvati is the energy of creation, which makes sense because she's also the goddess of of learning and of uh, music. <clears throat> so then you have Vishnu and, and Lakshmi. Vishnu is usually depicted in, in a royal posture sitting on uh, a lotus throne, as is his wife Lakshmi. And they're the deities of stability and prosperity. He's the deity of stability and prosperity. Lakshmi is the, the goddess of wealth and goal completion so it makes sense that the consciousness of stability and prosperity would be married to the goddess of of wealth and and goal completion um and then you have shiva and parvati um shiva is the god of transforming what was into what is going to be so constant transformation is is a a sacred concept of Shiva. That's what Shiva's kind of fundamental essence is: is constant transformation. So if you're a follower of Shiva, um, you're not always seeking stability. A Vaishnavite, a, a, a devotee of Lord Vishnu is seeking comfort and stability to provide a good context for spiritual growth. Shiva is very different. He's the god of continuous transformation. So following Shiva means following the unexpected. I think that's why there's a little bit of a romanticism that's built up around Lord Shiva in the West, because uh, we don't have an analog of that in in, in in Western society. The closest we have is Dionysus, and we don't really understand a whole lot about Dionysus because he's not he's not actively worshipped by huge numbers of people anymore. But Shiva is, and there's a huge scriptural base that tells us about Shiva. And the monks of Shiva um, shun being established in, in one place or having too much stability because they want to encounter God as they encounter change. And for them, if you're a wandering monk, a wandering ascetic, change is a constant, right? You're going from place to place. There are different people. There are different circumstances. There are different challenges. There are different fears. So it's a great development envi environment for a shy white monk. Um, and then, of course, Shiva's wife is Parvati. So she's seen in different forms. They're the three most popular forms of, of Shiva's wife are Parvati, and she's, in the iconography, she's a young, beautiful wife, blissfully enjoying marriage to Lord Shiva. Um, 
Then there's Durga. She rides, depending on the, the depiction and the tradition, a lion or a tiger. Uh, the lion's name is Dharma. And she's got many arms and she's holding many weapons. And she's the goddess. Well, she's the, she, for many, she's the primal mother goddess. She, she is mother. She's the divine mother. Um, you take your problems to her as you would to your own mother if she were all-powerful, um, and she'll get you fixed up. And that's been my experience with, with Durga. Um, there's another form of Shiva's wife, though, Kalima. And she's, her, her skin color is completely like lack of lack of color, like lack of light black, uh, black hole black, and she has a very terrifying appearance. Um, and she's depicted. Well, we'll go over her iconography later because I don't want to. It, it deserves a rich treatment and not a, just a passing mention. But Kali looks absolutely ferocious. She's terrifying. And so, what I found in my life after developing. Initially, she was just I mean, unthinkably scary to me. But now she's like a, a ferocious mother defending her children. So anything that I'm afraid of, I take to her. Because fear can really hold you back. It, can, it burns up all of your energy. And if you don't acknowledge that it's there uh, and go to someone, well, like Kali, that's com competent to remove the fear, it can hold you back. So I take my fear to Kali Ma because she's way scarier than anything that I'm afraid of. She's she's a great comfort, uh, and we'll we'll devote a whole show to Kali, of course. Um, so <clears throat> we'll wrap up with this. Here we have these deities, and maybe. Maybe as I study the deities, a particular deity becomes very interesting. Uh, they stand out from the crowd, right? And different people have different, I mean, there's, there are a bunch of de deities because the Supreme Self is reaching out to each and every one of us and, and intends to contact us in a way that we can best understand. I can best understand as, as Shiva, right? But there are a great many people that connect to Krishna much more directly. Um, a great many people have a, a primary relationship with Durga, with Kali, uh, with Lakshmi, Hanuman, uh, Sarasvati, and they're all they're all absolutely the the, the same efficacy in the sense that. They're all manifestations. They're all limitations of, of the infinite that for our purposes are there to help us. Uh, even when we serve them and worship them, we're really the big beneficiary. Shiva doesn't actually need anything from me, right? So I'm offering in love and he's receiving in love. Uh, but Shiva's not gonna go broke if you know, if something happens to me, he's, he's fine. Uh, but once I've started to, to kind of develop this, this 
interest in a deity, what do I do to begin to, to take a step forward in that relationship? Well, there are a lot of ways of connecting with a deity. Uh, one way is peaceful repose in love of the deity. In, in my case, the way I do that is I have a special, I have a temple, and I sit at the altar, and I light a Dia lamp or two, and maybe offer a little incense, and then just gaze at the window for a long, long time, and say, Lord Shiva, I, I don't have anything to offer but my company, but I really would like to spend some time with you. Can we just sit together? Maybe I'm tired, right? Maybe I'm unmotivated. Sometimes people are, but I still need I've got to get my battery charged and my battery gets charged by my proximity to Lord Shiva. And the connection does get, the connection gets, um, you can keep it up as you go through a professional life in a big city. Uh, but you gotta, you gotta come back to home base and reconnect. And it's like a family dinner when everybody comes back together after doing different stuff all day, right? I have to sit down with Shiva. So that's that's loving repose with the deity. I can have a picture of my deity and maybe a a small, you know, deal out. And that can be it has been many, many, many times a wonderful experience. And you don't have to know very much about it. You just say, you know, Lord Shiva or Kalima. Um, I'm interested in beginning a relationship with you, and I just like to sit here quietly with you. I don't know how to do a puja yet, but I will. But right now, or maybe I know how to do a puja, but I'm exhausted because it was a day. But I still want to spend some time with you. So that's a very that's a great way to start. Um, right up at the beginning, mantra was a really really big deal for me because. Uh, I just had to learn to pronounce one mantra and repeat it. And I could repeat it silently anywhere, no matter what I was doing. And or I can sit at the altar and, and, and chant the mantra. And there's the connection. And uh, Sanskrit's a non-representational language. So what that really means in practical terms for our purposes <laughs> is when I say Om Namah Shivaya, I'm not just breathing, I'm not, I'm not just speaking, uh, you know, con verbal constructs or verbal represent references to something. I'm causing that thing to be present right now when I say that. So here, as I said in front of the microphone, Om Namah Shivaya. Well, I've, I've, I've been given a tool to affect the very real manifestation of my deity anywhere, anytime, out loud or silently. And if you've never tried mantra before, it takes a little bit of getting used to. Um, I think for Westerners, the big problem that I've seen is, is we don't have a religious tradition of sitting quietly or sitting and doing a very simple thing repetitively. 
So that takes some getting used to. But uh, the way, you know, you can think that you can reframe it. You can think, <clears throat> okay, just by the very act of sitting here still saying this mantra, I'm making an offering of loving submission to a very powerful deity that is willing to develop a personal relationship with me. And then it certainly, when I remember why I'm sitting there saying the mantra, then it's a lot easier to, to stay there. Um, and I, I said at the end of the last show that in this show, we're going to talk about how to make a mala. <clears throat> so here it is. Uh, and no, you cannot order, order one from Shiv Baba Incorporated uh, for $9.95 because there is no Shiv Baba Incorporated. But what you can do is look on eBay, look on Amazon, and do a search for Rude Raksha. Uh, do the best spelling it, and, and the autocomplete will probably take care of the rest. Look for Rude Raksha beads. Um, and the tradition I receive is that one wears one's mala all the time. Uh, so I sleep in the mala. I go, everything I do, I do in the mala. And I have large beads on my mala because I want to be constantly reminded by the weight of the, of the mala. I need to be reminded okay, get back in touch with Shiva, stay in union with Shiva, because it takes focus, I'll drift away. Uh, and the mala is there to remind me constantly. And for me, a big, heavy mala with, with giant Rudraksha beads is impossible to ignore for very long at all, so it works for me. But you can get small Rudraksha beads. Look on the eBay, Amazon, there are other sites too. Uh, Figure out what size you want. You, you need to order 108 beads. We'll talk about that number in more detail later. Uh, and you need to order, uh, really, for, for our beginner mala, um, the easiest way to put it together is to get some high-test fishing line. That's easy to thread the beads onto. Put 108 beads. Uh, do a search for tassel. You can order that on Amazon or eBay too. Pick out a tassel you like, tie it on there, and then start. Find the mantra for the deity you're interested in. And then say that mantra once for each bead on the mall. Om Namah Shivaya, 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 Om Namah Shivaya. And it will be very weird and very alien, and you won't want to keep doing it. And you'll think about the, you know, five more pleasant things you would rather be doing, like, man, I sure need to get that car washed. Man, I ought to wash the dog. Stuff you never would have thought about if you were just having a regular day. But now washing the dog is an attractive proposition. Because your ego is panicking, it doesn't like being told what to do. It thinks that it exists unto itself. It doesn't know it's an incarnation of divine consciousness in union with all. And the only way for the union, the ego, to learn that is by sitting still and doing them all. So you start off with 108, 
and then <clears throat> periodically increase the number of malas you're saying. Uh, I've done up to 108 malas of 108 mantras in a row, and it's a magnificent experience. It's a transformative experience, but you don't start off with that. And those first 108 malas are transformative in their own right. Um, so that that's that I think the the sitting quietly with your deity uh, and the the mala with, with the mantras is probably the 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 most accessible doorway. And later on, uh, there are there are time tested ways of spending quality time with your deity things that the deity enjoys. So one of the things that many deities enjoy is puja. Um, and what that means is I'm going to sit down in a sacred place or a place of my home that I've set aside as just for spending time with my deity. And I'm going to offer some gifts, uh, milk, honey, sugar, uh, ghee, uh, Kumkum and Sindur, that's the that's the red stuff that you see on the, the dots of worshippers' uh, heads, the, the, the dots on the foreheads. Um, you offer incense, you offer beautiful lights uh, with clarified butter or ghee. Um, and you, off, you offer song or hymns to the deity. Um, one one wonderful part of many pujas is the recitation of the 108 names of the deity. So in the case of the Shiva puja, one of the names given for Shiva is Lord of the Animals. And so in practicing that puja and offering those hymns and those 108 names again and again and again, uh, now Shiva has more dimensions for me than Shiva had before, right? There are different sides to Shiva that I didn't appreciate before, but by repetition, by worshiping him in these time-tested forms, um, I've gradually gained insight into the deity that I've particularly fallen in love with. So now, uh, you know, in, in Western European religious culture, you have the image of St. Francis, the saint of the animals. And uh, many Catholic and, and Anglican parishes every year on St. Francis, they have people bring their animals in, their pets in for a special blessing. Well, Shiva is like that for me now, right? Because he's the Lord of the animals. Uh, he has his beloved bull, Nandi, that uh, is, uh, you know, a, a a transportation, but also like a, a best friend, a deity in his own right. You have the cobra around his neck, which is a symbol for energy. We'll talk about that. But Shiva, for me now, when I go in the forest and I see life forms or animals, I'm like, wow, hey, I worship the Lord of the animals. So it's, uh, there's also, I mean, there's so many different ways to to, to develop a relationship with the deity. I mentioned song, hymns, kirtan, like we hear on, on these stations every day. Um, there are spiritual dance. Now, there are formal, very, very difficult to learn dances uh, 
of Shiva that young people in India uh, often learn. But that doesn't mean that if I'm a dancer and I want to have an show, develop an expression of love for my deity that involves dance, I'm, I'm at liberty to do that. Um, seeing the deity in the needy and the sick doing service, that's a way of getting to know your, your deity, right? If you help someone who can't repay you or you help someone just because they need help, and you do that because it's a puja offering to your deity, ah, well, that's twice as good of karma, right? Because that way you've got the karma of offering to your deity, which is always sweet, and you have some karma yoga going. You're, you're directly generating the karma. So that's a, that's a double winner, and I love practicing that. Um, you can see God as a parent. There are plenty of people that see Lord Vishnu or Lord Shiva as a father figure. Uh, or they see, you know, certainly Durga Ryan, Kalima as uh, uh, mother figures, right? There are so many different ways to get in touch with God that and they don't they don't necessarily offer they don't really involve anyone but you. And your deity they can involve others but they don't have to they didn't at, at first it was an experience that well i'll tell you i'll tell you guys one day on a show but uh it, it didn't start off with knowing everything about it it started off with a desire to develop a relationship with the infant and that's what i found so I hope everyone's enjoying the show. Uh, I have a page on Facebook called Shiv Baba. If you want to search it out and find it, you can connect with me there. I really enjoy spending this time with you every week. If you're an absolute beginner and you have more questions than answers and you need a starting point, then you are my absolute target. If there are experienced gurus and wise people listening, experienced practitioners, I'm honored that you've chosen to spend time with me and uh, I bow to you all. And, and I bow to all of my listeners. Thank you so very much. I'll see you. Oh, well, we'll hear each other next week.